2: that we have reached a deal to end the shutdown and reopen the federal government.
1: And that was President Trump speaking just moments ago in the Rose Garden, down at the White House in the nation's capital, much anticipated. And after 35 days, it appears the shutdown is over. It's been a busy day in Washington owing to that and some other headlines. So. Let's get a sense of what it all means. Craig Gordon, executive editor and Washington bureau chief, joins us. The hardest working man in Hollywood I know, Craig. uh, So what do we take away from what we just heard from the president?
3: What you saw right there was a complete and utter capitulation by the president on his demand for wall funding. You may remember that he said he would not sign a bill that did not include five point seven billion dollars to build a wall. Then yesterday they said, "Well, at least a down payment," but like, but a big down payment. And then today he accepted exactly zero dollars. That is huge.
0: What happened? Um, Why did he all of a sudden? Why did he capitulate?
3: I think what happened is Laguardia Airport got shut down today, (laughs) and um, you know it's all fun and games until um, someone. land their airplane. Um, it's hard not to take note of the timing of the Roger Stone indictment on the same day. We, I'm sure we'll talk about that in a minute. But, uh, you know, Trump is a master of distraction. And um, certainly a lot of us in the newsroom who are writing stories about Roger Stone and how uh, his close ties to uh, candidate Trump and President Trump, Uh, suddenly we're now having to write about the end of the shutdown. So, um, you know, we'll be be back to Stone uh, before long here. But uh, you did have just a lot of pressure piling up on Trump. I think also you saw... Yesterday, after they took those two votes in the Senate that both failed, you know, McConnell and Schumer got together, and I think there was a little bit of a growing drumbeat among even some Republican senators to say, look, Mr. President, if you're not going to open this up, we will. So, you know, obviously better for him to look like he's in control of the situation, but it is, it is pretty hard to overstate um, uh, how much he, uh, he gave up on the wall.
1: Well, and, you know, we were talking, Carol and I were talking as we were listening, too, and and it does feel, on the other side, like a pretty clean win for Speaker Nancy Pelosi here.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, it's interesting because there were a lot of questions about whether Pelosi was sort of the right leader for the new Democratic majority. You've got. A kind of a younger and more diverse um, majority in the House now. Boy, I think she's she's earning her pay. Um, right. and, yeah. uh, she's really, she's kind of getting it done for them um, right now. I mean, look, she stood in with the President of the United States and uh, she pretty much got everything she wanted so far and he's gotten almost nothing that he wanted so far and that's kind of a win by any measure.
1: So, Craig, i got to ask you, you know, one of the things that I think has been played many times and maybe not surprisingly is that seemingly seminal meeting in the Oval Office among the president the vice president senator schumer speaker pelosi or then you know house minority leader pelosi where trump said i will own this i will shut down the government how much has that come to haunt him uh, in a way, especially in terms of public perception of who's to blame for what's happened over the past 35 days?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it was sort of determinative. If you go back and watch that tape, my favorite part of that tape is is uh, look at Chuck Schumer, the Senate <laughs> right. uh, Senate top Senate Democrat. He can barely contain his laughter because he knows he's got him. He's got him in that moment. And look, I, there's been a lot of polls out about who's to blame for the shutdown. There is not a single one that I've seen that says Democrats um, you know, have the blame or the majority Majority, you know, blame um, blame Trump on the Republicans, and and that's that has given Pelosi and Schumer just enormous um, ability to maneuver. They know that they they sort of have the public against Trump on this. They they kind of felt like they were on the side of the angels. I thought that when Pelosi said he couldn't deliver the State of the Union, that might have been a misstep on her part because he is the president, and if he wants to give a speech, he should give a speech. But that doesn't even seem to have changed the changed the dynamic. And here we are, just a few days later. Where Trump is capitulating, so they have had you know public opinion on their side, and I do think you know the Laguardia thing was a, was a pretty seminal moment. But just the whole drumbeat, people not getting paid, people right. going to food banks. We've a couple. I've been through the airport and watching those TSA people, and you know they're not getting paid and they're still doing their job. I think for a lot of Americans, that was that was unpleasant, and and they decided that Trump was the one that uh, bore the blame.
0: But to quote one of our former colleagues, Hans Nichols, who tweeted, "A ceasefire, not a truce. I mean, this ain't over."
3: No, but and I agree with that. Um, I, I I would say a couple of things about that. Um, it, it seems like it'd be really hard to shut down the government again. You yeah. know, having sort of just come through it. Um, I know that this this only is a three week deal, and, and theoretically on February fifteenth the money runs out just like it ran out before, and you could you could happen again. Boy, I, I think at that point you might have a lot of a lot of lawmakers on the Republican <laughs> side again, <laughs> right. kind of saying like, look, Mr. President, we can do this the easy way. We can do this the hard way. I don't think they want to kind of go through this again. Um, and, and secondly, you know, again, you know, I've said it about five times, but there's no way, there's no way to look at this except that Trump caved. I mean, Nancy Pelosi knows that. Chuck Schumer knows that. Democratic Party knows that. And so the idea that he comes back three weeks later playing a stronger hand and having a better chance to get the wall. I, there's no version of politics that I, I'm familiar with where that's true.
0: So, Craig, is the pressure? So let's let's talk about. You reference Roger Stone today because you're right. We came bang out of the gate this morning. I'm reading in, you know, and this was the big story. And I thought this was going to be the big story in addition to the shutdown, but really the big story out of Washington. So, Roger Stone, longtime Republican strategist, sometime confident of the president, charged with obstructing Special Counsel Robert Mueller's investigation of Russia Russian interference in the 2016 uh, elections. So. Is that investigation getting to the president?
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, we don't know where this is all going to lead. I, I think of it a little bit like concentric circles with Donald Trump in the middle, you know, and, and Mueller has been moving through those uh, Manafort first. That was kind of low hanging fruit. Uh, he had some, you know, some filing violations and uh, et cetera. That was kind of an easy one. Once they raided Cohen, that was one circle closer to Trump. They got all the you know the records from from his hotel room and all that stuff. Now you've got Stone, who was a is, you know, was a confidant of, of Trump for many, many years. I mean, and a couple of New Yorkers that go back a long way, probably 30 years, in New York City, New York State politics. So they know each other well. And that, you know, again, um, Mueller is alleging that Stone lied in some of his testimony. So that, that's usually fairly easy to prove. It's interesting in the indictment, it doesn't really get to the substance of, of too much into the substance, or Stone is not charged related to the substance of. The Mueller allegation that he was the go-between uh, between WikiLeaks and the Russian hacked Democratic National Committee emails and the Trump campaign—it's—it's it's in there. It's talked about. It's sort of that's the role that Mueller believes or alleges that Stone played. He's actually not actually charged with any of that. Most of that, most of it's just perjury and such. But again, you now have a, a very direct link between um, WikiLeaks, Russia. Stone and people in the Trump campaign there's a very tantalizing part of that uh, indictment where it talks about Stone was directed by senior Trump campaign officials to sort of reach out to WikiLeaks and see what they had on the Democratic National Committee emails or any kind of dirt on Hillary we don't know who did the reaching out but you know there again there's another person who's likely a a target of potentially some future Mueller action so with every step he's building this very methodical case it does feel like we're getting closer to Donald Trump
1: right and well, it seems like a long time ago, at least to me, I mean, this earlier this was the week that earlier we heard a little bit of back and forth around Michael Cohen, the president's former lawyer, as it relates to his planned testimony on Capitol Hill uh, in front of the House uh, being uh, postponed by him. This is mm-hmm. voluntary testimony. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now is it do I have it right that he has been subpoenaed uh, to to testify behind closed doors <laughs> yeah. uh, in front of the Senate?
3: Yeah. Uh, following the bouncing ball, I'm pretty sure that's right. It's again, it's like we can do this the easy way, the hard way. They right. asked him to come in. He'd said, I'll tell my story anytime, anyplace. Uh Donald Trump started tweeting some rather, you know, sort of threatening things about members of his family. And he decided, you know, maybe not. Um, but they can subpoena him. Democrats, uh, you know, have subpoena power. They, they can bring him in to talk. And again... Probably nobody on earth except Donald Trump himself knows more about Donald Trump's business dealings than Michael Cohen. Um, Roger Stone, again, we can presume was in, we know, was in close contact with Trump off and on during the campaign. Uh, Manafort, again, was right in the middle of the campaign along with his associate Rick Gates. So, Robert Mueller knows a lot of things right now, um, and as I say, mm-hmm. I think I, I don't want to use the cliche off tip of the iceberg because it's hard to know exactly where in the iceberg we are right. in terms of the Mueller investigation. But I think you know, again, even in the Stone indictment, there's nothing specifically you know laying out point by point the, the uh, alleged ties between Stone, WikiLeaks, and the Trump campaign and all that. But it's all there; it's all like right there, in there, and you can only presume that Mueller has a lot more to say on that. That puts People like Stone and others from the campaign much more directly in in the middle of that. And now you have a situation where you have uh, essentially a U.S. presidential campaign seeking information from a foreign government. Um, that's you're not supposed to do that. Um, right. and So, well, you know, what, I, it seems like Mueller uh, is heading in that direction.
0: So if that's ultimately where we end up, Craig. I mean, what could potentially happen? So, does that mean you have charges against a sitting president? I mean, legally, like, this is kind of a new world for us, no? So, if that indeed is how it, it plays out, how would it? Out.
3: yeah i mean it, it's it's a little hard to tell i i do think we're we're kind of back to the old like what did the president know and when when we yeah. know it um from the days of watergate um and that and that we don't know um, i mean just to be fair to all involved here we certainly have a lot of people who we know talked to donald trump paul manafort um roger stone people like that and michael cohen in pretty close proximity to some to some bad and and uh, likely illegal things we don't know yet if they told trump if trump knew if trump directed them we just we simply don't know and again i think we will know before the end of this but that's going to ultimately be the question i mean to, yeah. to be really blunt you know blunt about it how much trouble donald gets trouble donald trump gets in is how much he knew and how much he directed if any if anything and we just don't know yet
0: one last quick question does the president deliver his state of the union speech on january 29th
3: um, I don't think it'll be on the 29th because that'd be a pretty quick turnaround, just almost logistically. But we actually were watching the watching the Rose Garden event that just happened to see if he would sort of say at the end, oh, by the way, I'm going to give my speech on x Date, which, <laughs> which he didn't do. So Stay uh, more, more to come on that, right?
0: You are the best. And I know it's been busy for you guys and your team, but uh, you always get us up to speed. Thank you. Thank you. Craig That's Gordon, uh, Washington Bureau Chief at Bloomberg News, from our one studio in the nation's capital.
1: So as you have been hearing, it appears there is an agreement to re- open the government based on what the President of the United States just said uh, moments ago in the Rose Garden. You heard some of the context just there uh, from Executive Editor and D.C. Bureau Chief Craig Gordon. More to come on that. More to come on the market reaction. This is Bloomberg. Hi,
2: Jason.
0: Hi, Jason.
1: I think that is widely considered one of the greatest songs of all
0: time. It kind of is one of the greatest songs of all time. Lots of stuff on YouTube, different versions. I love it. Anyway, there is a reason we're playing that song because in our weekly look at Venture Capital this week, uh, we often talk about emerging markets being hotspots for trying ways of doing things differently. And it's often out of necessity, which is may explain why we're seeing kind of financial innovation and more in places such as Africa. See, I made the connection. I got it. Okay, good. Jake Bright knows a lot about that. He's the author of The Next Africa. He's also a contributor to TechCrunch. He's been spending some time over in Africa. He's usually based in Hartford, Connecticut. He found our way to, or found his way to, our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Nice to have you back with us. Great to be back. Happy New Year. Thanks. Same to you. So tell us about what's going on in terms of Africa. You actually spent some time. There recently. Yeah,
4: I spent a lot of time uh, last year in the startup markets, we, um, working with TechCrunch. We did the second startup battlefield Africa in Lagos, a thousand techies show up, 15 of the continent's top startups show up to pitch off against uh, VCs from around the world. And I also recently did a study with Crunchbase where we did a scrub of all the Africa focused VCs in the world and quantified the top viable, put them on a list. And? And um, did a little work on that.
0: Is there a lot?
4: Well, what we came up with, and we qua- we qualified viable as focused on Africa with seven to ten investments or more, um, venture funding from seed to series stage. And we found 51 viable Africa-focused <coughs> VC firms globally, hmm. which is actually a pretty big number yeah. considering that this this market's been around for a while, but five to seven years is really when a big chunk of the growth has happened. Uh, the trends we found there is um, actually a, a greater percentage of those are locally run and operated. So a lot of Africans on the continent are getting into the VC scene. Um, and another thing that came is out of that. Is it just like
0: the U.S. scene where somebody creates a company, does well, sells it or whatever, has a bunch of money, and then they continue kind of we funding hope, we want it to get companies? There. I mean,
4: people wanted to get there. Africa's tech scene is a little performance light. So um, you have the pieces of the puzzle coming together. You have startups that are, are emerging everywhere. So there are now thousands of startups. Startup culture is really starting to take off in Africa. Going into everything, like the informal economy, any problem. As you mentioned, there's a lot more focus on utility. But startups are going into ag tech. EDU tech, e-commerce, logistics. Um, So there's a ton of startups. You're starting to get the emergence of VC. Um, The big global tech names are moving into Africa, Facebook, Google, Uber. But the, the market is still pretty performance light. So there's not been a big IPO yet on a major exchange. You have one unicorn, and there aren't a lot of exits. So those events aren't there yet, Carol, but you're getting people that were already in the startup scene and also
1: some people who are in later stage successful startups starting to invest in form VC funds. And in terms of inbound money, I think we're interested in that in part because we just had a story a couple of weeks ago in the magazine that was talking um, about how the Chinese have really invested very heavily in both physical infrastructure and also, you know, different types uh, of companies, especially technology companies, mm-hmm. the U.S., has pulled back uh, of late, at least from a sort of governmental perspective. And you worked in the Department of Commerce. You sort of understand international finance (laughs) better than uh, most people we talk to, and certainly more than I do. What are the dynamics of inbound capital at this point? Well, there's
4: a really strong position uh, from the U.S., and it's not just it's inbound capital, but a lot of these big tech companies are also writing grants to hubs. Um, Like Facebook sponsored TechCrunch Startup Battlefield Africa, which gave seed money to a winner. Um, You also have, you don't really have some of the big US VCs aren't necessarily carving off parts or creating new funds to focus on Africa, but they're doing individual rounds. Okay. And you have some interesting stuff, like, for example, the the one unicorn on the continent um, based out of Nigeria, Jumia.com. One of the big investors in them is Goldman Sachs. No kidding. There's a little venture group within Goldman Sachs that's yeah. been investing. Goldman just did another big investment in Andela, which is a tech talent coding company of $100 million. So when it comes to ties, and also when you look at China, when it comes to ties between African tech in the U.S. commercially, um, they're actually much stronger, I would say, with the United States and the huh. U.S. tech community than they are with China, and one final thing to add is a big driver of Africa's tech sector, and also VC, is the big diaspora here in the US. Okay. So, so many people that are in African tech are coming from immigrant backgrounds, are leaving some people like Taya Ovioso, who's the CEO of Paga, this fintech company in Nigeria, quit jobs in Silicon Valley to actually go home. So there's a lot of cultural ties that are driving the, the digital and the economic ties.
0: Um, pretty. Pretty fascinating. Just real quickly, thirty seconds, because you were in Nigeria. Is that kind of the center where it's all happening, or what? Africa's um, Nigeria is becoming. A huge country. It's
4: becoming really the center for tech growth.
0: or huge in, in
4: Africa. Uh, it has this thesis where it's it has the largest population, and largest economy. Right. It also has a big diaspora. So, in terms of VC growth, in terms of viable startups, in terms of performance by startups. Um, Nigeria is kind of the, the capital on the continent now.
0: We love talking with you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank Look you. Look forward to it next time. It was great to kind of get your insight about what's going on. Hey, Jake Bright, he is contributor to TechCrunch. Uh, he's also author of The Next Africa, so check that out as well. Based in Hartford, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Master, Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio.
2: Move around. Motion creates emotion. I
5: feel
6: the earth
0: move on the motion. You move like they do. I've never seen anyone move that fast.
6: All right, people, let's move like we've got a purpose.
3: Something's called movers and shakers. They cost a little more, but
6: that name cracked me up. Bloomberg Business Week. Movers and Shakers with Carol Messer and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio.
1: And it is time for your Movers and Shakers, brought to you today by Sirius Executives, temporary, part-time, and interim-based executive talent, on-site within a week when you need it. Visit C-E-R-I-U-S Executives. .com special guest for Movers and Shakers today.
0: Yes, indeed. We're kind of shaking it up just because, it is because kind of it's kind special. Because it's Friday. It special. Uh, Lincoln Ellis is in the house. He's Senior Investment Strategist at Northern Trust Global Family and Private Investment Group. Whew. That's a long title or a mm-hmm. long company name. Just Would I ever say. do
5: anything that didn't have a long title for Carol? <laughs> Can we get you, an you acronym
0: long or something. Yeah. One point one trillion in assets under management. Uh, here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio. Nice to see you. Thanks.
1: Good to be back. A friend of the show, yeah. as it were. Yeah. Well, long we'll, time we'll
0: see. We'll see how he does today.
5: <laughs> wow. Um, let's I- move, let's move in shape. <laughs>
0: Hey, listen, though, speaking of moving and shaking, I mean, we've had a really significant bullish bounce uh, off that uh, Christmas Eve selling low. Uh, today, though, I'm looking at uh, the weekly tallies for the Dow, uh, the Nasdaq and the S&P 500 are pretty much flat for the week overall, kind of marking time a little bit. Um, I don't know. What do you make of the market environment?
5: I don't know, come a long way in a pretty short period of time. Almost reminiscent, actually, of January about this time last year when we were up, what, eight and change. Very much so, right? Yeah, so we're up seven and change, S&P off the bounce. Uh, Europe and the emerging markets the same. And so getting a pause at this stage of the game, perhaps a little bit of, you know, it was interesting to watch during the press conference the markets not actually react to the yeah. news that was breaking today. And so really now it's a it's a case of, you know, what happens on the political front and what ha- happens on that political front means uh, a great deal for how investors uh, allocate capital for the rest of the year.
1: All right, so let's talk a little bit about volatility because I know you have dug into that a lot lately. I was just looking on my Bloomberg here at a chart and, you know, the spike that we saw uh, toward the end of the year The VIX got up above 35, I believe, settled today, 17, so half of that. Uh, What do you make of the role that volatility is playing in this sort of market? Uh,
5: You know, the piece that we wrote, which will come out on Monday, was really trying to understand now that volatility is back, how do we uh, think about that from from investors who have a long-term time horizon? And obviously that's different from a tactical perspective. But – What we were noticing was, one, in the fall, actually through the October time frame, volatility was normalizing to its longer-term trend numbers, which was, we thought, healthy, right? When it spiked in December, uh, that's less healthy. But in the context of what we saw looking out over the horizon in terms of the broad-based health of the global economy, we thought to ourselves, perhaps this is a time when investors could look through – sort of the near-term worries that were upsetting the market and that the VIX was vocalizing.
0: Well, go back. I mean, I'm trying to remember. I mean, it was pretty ugly in that fourth quarter, but it, Were we overdone in terms of the pullback that we saw in equities? I think everybody wanted to take some of the air out of the equity markets a little bit because it had just been a move up. You're smiling at me. But, I mean, it's just like – but then we got the – I'm trying to figure out what's the right thing. Was it that significant pullback? Is it the most recent pullback – most recent bounce back? A little bit of both.
5: I think definitely a little, a little bit of both. If you look at say the S&P 500, uh, I was looking at the and 500 and the emerging markets over the course of the past 2 years, mm-hmm. investors might be interested or you know worth reminding investors that in fact EM equities over the course of the rolling 2-year period at the end of the year had outperformed US equities by 100 basis points now the ride that investors took over those two years are very different rides right right? up 37 percent in em in 2017 and then down 14 percent the following year and so what we were writing about in our piece again was really trying to distinguish investors capacity to take a particular kind of risk and their preference for a particular kind of risk and getting that right Right. for long-term investors is important.
0: Just got about 45 seconds left here. Are your investors that you guys are talking to a lot of higher net wealth individuals? Um, net worth, rather, individuals, are they more willing to take risk in this environment right now or less?
5: So interesting. Taking a little bit of a risk off the table because there are interesting opportunities particularly for U.S. domiciled investors at the longer end of the municipal curve. It Mm -hmm. has steepened dramatically. And if you can get a 6% tax equivalent yield, that's an interesting place to do it. And then the other place where they've been focusing are longer term or longer duration assets in um, fixed assets so real estate and private equity Lincoln Ellis senior
1: investment strategist at Northern Trust based in Chicago but here with us in He's our Bloomberg Interactive friend. you
0: passed friend of the you. Show. we're keeping you, you around friend of the you
1: show. Friend. very fit as well <laughs> good luck in your half Ironman thank you thank you Goodbye next week alright uh, you are listening to Bloomberg Business Week volatility as we said uh, hitting that 17 mark today volatility mm-hmm. down this is Bloomberg <laughs> alright Dave you're up Uh, Hi, Uh,
6: my name is Dave.
1: Wilson, where are you?
6: Wilson! Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? We're going for the price on Wilson. Open up
1: the door. Dave. Who? Dave. Hey, Mr. Wilson!
0: All right, Dave Wilson in the house with his Stock of the Day, ticker is
2: HRC. Yes, indeed. We're talking about Hillrom. This is a company that does hospital beds, stretchers, furniture for hospital rooms, anything kind of related to that. Uh, they were separated in 2008 from a casket maker, Hill Brand Industries. Uh, and since then, I mean, it's been mostly up. You know, the stock climbed more than 12 fold since U.S. shares entered a bull market in March 2009. And the gains kept going in the last two quarters, even though earnings reports weren't always well received. Well, they came out with uh, fiscal first quarter results today, and the outcome was more favorable. Rom's earnings and revenue last quarter beat analysts' average estimates in the Bloomberg survey. The company re- reaffirmed its full-year sales forecast while trimming its profit outlook just because of an accounting change. Hillrom rose to a record after the results. The shares gained as much as 8.5% during the day, backed off a bit toward the close, nonetheless still up 4.9%. Stock is up almost
0: 16% so far this year already. <laughs>
6: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio.
1: So, Carol, you know, one of the biggest stories right now, and we talk about it in the magazine this week. Yes. Even though it's taken a backseat of sorts to the shutdown is the trade negotiations between the United States and
0: China. It's, not, it's another one of those things, a big issue that's on our list of worries when it comes for uh, it comes to investors. We're about five weeks, in fact, away from a deadline for the U.S. to escalate tariffs on a bunch of Chinese goods. Let's get into this. With us uh, is former Democratic U.S. Senator from Montana, former U.S. ambassador to China during the Obama administration. Max Baucus is back with us, and he joins us uh, from the nation's capital. Hey, Max, so nice uh, to have you with us uh, once again. How do you see where you know? Have we made some progress? Do you feel like when it comes to the U.S.-China negotiations?
6: I think so. Um, um, at one level, yes, in the sense that um, Leo Ho, the primary Chinese negotiator, his team is went back to the United States at the end of the month. For him to come back is a very strong signal that um, they're making a lot of progress. Because you recall that when he reached a, an agreement with Treasury Secretary Mnuchin over a month or so ago, the President Trump pulled the rug out from under that agreement. So, Wilhuff was hurt. I mean, he was um, he felt burned, and he's not going to come back again until he feels like he's got a deal. So that's good. In addition, um, I, I think that just like the shutdown, there's so much pressure on president trump and on the democrats to try to reach an agreement from the shutdown that is with air traffic controllers calling in sick etc the rich there comes a point where finally they've got to reach the deal there's so much pain there's analogy here with um, with the trade negotiations so there's so much pain now on both sides china and the u.s um it's getting in the world economy starting to slow down at davos world leaders were telling um, business leaders each, each other that, hey, uh, China and the United States are going to get their act together. And they hope that Brexit reaches some kind of a deal, too, so that the world economy starts to pick up again.
1: Well, and what's so interesting, uh, Ambassador Bacchus is this notion that the Chinese economy—and you mentioned this—you know, may be at a different point than it has been over the past few years. You know, we saw that warning from Apple uh, at the beginning of this month, and so the the negotiating posture may be a little bit different uh, owing to that. Having been the ambassador there, you understand the the culture and and the the posture as well as anyone. What what does a win look like from the Chinese perspective as they head to Washington?
2: Well,
6: um, um, President Xi Jinping and the Communist Party have, have only one interest, and that's maintaining power. And to maintain power, they got the to keep the people happy. How do you keep the people happy? you got to make sure they got jobs, incomes, food at the table, kids, the kids' education being taken care of. So – with the Chinese economy slowing down, he is getting a little more nervous. Um, he just, he, it's gonna be difficult for him to maintain um, his, his position. He'll keep it, but it's a little more precarious if he doesn't get a deal. Chinese people I talk to, businessmen, wealthy and middle level, say they're very, very concerned. They say there's privilege to me about Xi Jinping. He's going the wrong direction. He's not opening up with economic reform, as he indicated he might. And he's hearing that, and that's going to have an effect, too. On the other hand, the Chinese people are very tough. They're Mm -hmm. very tough. Um, I think that even though this trade spat is hurting China a little bit more than it's hurting the United States, it's important to remember that Chinese can withstand pain more easily than can Americans withstand pain. They've been through it with the Cultural Revolution leap forward. So basically, Xi Jinping wants a deal. He wants to keep people happy. And the Chinese will give in a little. They'll focus on exporting many more products in the United States. They'll give in a little bit a little bit of window dressing on China 2025 and, you know, trade technology transfer, but just enough so that they reach a deal.
0: No, I think that's a really good point. And we've talked, certainly, uh, there's been several stories in the magazine, in Business Week magazine, that just talks about kind of the national pride and when we get these kind of fights, these very – visual fights between U.S. and China in terms of trade that, you know, the Chinese kind of hunker down and they can push back on U.S. goods. And we see certainly U.S. companies getting getting hurt about that. All right. So what is very key, Ambassador Baucus, that the U.S., how they tread uh, forward when it comes to reaching a deal?
6: I think fundamentally, um, maybe not immediately, but certainly <laughs> In the, in the, in immediate term and long term, two things have to happen. Number one, um, China is going to have to recognize that we Americans are quite impatient with Chinese promises. China makes a lot of promises, and China really does not live up to them because China plays the long game. Um, they don't have to worry about uh, congresses, administrations changing every three to four years. Um, they're authoritarian and they just wait us out. China has realize that we Americans are more and more impatient with China waiting us uh, waiting, waiting it out. That is, that America, they're going to have to greet American demands for more benchmarks and guidelines and hence posts that indicate the degree to which China is living up this side of the agreement. On the other hand, um, I think it's important uh, for America, frankly, uh, to back down a little bit from sending the signals to China that um, it, we in the United States want to have the tech logical hegemony, and we want to keep China down. We don't want China to develop this technology. The more China feels that the U.S. is trying to keep China down, and that's the kind of he tell me, and I talk to him, the more that they arch it the back up, they don't like that, it's going to make it more difficult, they dig their heels in the sand. So, frankly, we have to find a way where there's not technological hegemony, but where, we, where both countries work to develop 5G, 6G, et cetera, but in a way where we can trust each other, and that's the key right there, trust. And to get trust is going to find, find some way where we think that maybe Huawei is not trying to spy as much as he said. It to take a long time to figure that out.
1: Max Baucus, former U.S. Senator from Montana and, of course, former U.S. Ambassador to China under President Obama. We really appreciate your time, as always, and your perspective ahead of some very, very important meetings. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Jason Kelly alongside Carol Masser, and this is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern
2: only on Bloomberg Radio.